Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. It's time to get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October 29th, 2013, and this is episode 1236 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, I've been breaking from the schedule recently, and I'm going to continue to do that in a roundabout way. Uh, you know, Maybe I would should be making up a listener calls or listener feedback show today. Tuesday's generally a standalone show with me talking about some subject or, or, or thing that we can all learn from, uh, and we're going to do that today. We won't be making up the fact that I skipped a feedback show yesterday. Um, I, I've had a few emails from a, a couple of you guys and some comments basically saying, hey, man, take a vacation if you need it. Man, I had a vacation 10 days. But what I needed a break from, and what I'm giving you guys a break from, is the government sucks and they're causing us misery and anguish and being a bunch of dicks. I mean, that's, that's what I'm giving you a break from, because we all know that at this point. And this is a solution-oriented show, and, you know, we'll get our fill of that tomorrow. I have a guy coming on tomorrow named Michael Evans. He is uh, the founder of America's Voice Now and a syndicated radio host. And uh, we're going to talk about the surveillance state tomorrow with, with Michael. So we, we don't really need to talk about it today, and that's what the feedback shows have largely turned into. Uh, then we're going to break it up on uh, Thursday with... Uh, with a lady named Jenna who uh, wrote The One Woman Farm. And uh, so we have some variety coming this week. And Friday we'll do a listener feedback show, and we'll have some stuff from the expert council and all. And, you know, we'll roll back into the swing of things. But I want to have some fun this week. I really do. And I don't want to get caught up in a lot of the stuff that we all know. I mean, I, how many times can I tell you what they're doing um, without it just turning into a one-dimensional show of being beaten over the head with the problems? Today I thought it would be fun to talk about what we're going to be doing on the TSP homestead and uh, some of the plans we have now that have really come out clear in the past few weeks uh, with Joe and I working together to develop them. And I think I'm, I'm more excited about my property right now, this very second, than I've ever been, uh, including the first time I saw it and I knew it was the place we were going to live. Um, I'll talk to you about how, how you get there and how you, you get to a point where you're really ready to roll with a property uh, when we get into the main topic of today's show, before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, JM Bullion. JM Bullion is a great supplier of gold and silver. They have everything you could be looking for from generic silver rounds to silver eagles, uh, pre-65 silver coin, gold, you name it, they got it. Great pricing. When I wanted to bring on a silver and gold sponsor... When I let another one go because they got wrapped up into a multi-level marketing silver scam. And I, I would not have them as a, a sponsor after that happened. I, I looked for a company that was big enough to have great pricing. And, and I went to some of the big names and, and talked to them. Monix and Atmex were the two that I really thought would be a good thing. And I could talk to somebody in marketing, but there was no way I could talk to a president or an owner or someone that I knew. If there was a problem, I could, I could make it a phone call or an email and get it sorted. When I found J.M. Bullion, I was talking directly to the president, uh, Michael Whitmire, and uh, he said, yeah, man, whatever, whenever goes on going forward, just let me know, and, and we'll make sure it gets hammered out. The few hiccups that have happened, it's taken care of. Uh, and their pricing? Well, better than Monix and Atmex. Well, that's what I'm looking for in a sponsor, especially in the silver and gold world. If you're looking to buy silver eagles, generic silver rounds, gold bars, things like that, Check out jambullion.com. Remember, they do a discount on orders over $300. 
uh, and then a bigger discount on orders over $1,000. Make sure if you're an MSB member, you get that discount when you place your order. You'll find it on the benefits page of the Member Support Brigade if you are a member. Next up today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? You're going to get Berkey Water Filtration Systems. You're also going to get other great things for your prepping needs, long-term storage food. A lot of great products are available at his website, which is directive21.com. The word directive followed by the numbers 2and1.com. Get on over there and check it out. If you're buying food from him, Mountain House Food, he has a discount for you if you're an MSB member. And if you're buying stuff for your Berkey, he has a special deal for MSB members. You'll find out about both of those deals in the Member Support Brigade. So both of today's sponsors are supporters of the MSB which is a good segue into the Member Support Brigade. If you like what I do and you want to support my show, you can do that by becoming a member of what I call my Members Support Brigade. That's the people that say, hey, I like this show, and I think it's worth about 18.3 cents an episode. That's why I listen to it. And they join up at 50 bucks a year, and you get great discounts like the one I just talked about and a bunch of other really great benefits. And it gets even better. If you're military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or active duty or prior service first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, and you email me before, not after, but before you join, put service discount in the subject line and tell me in about two sentences who you are and what you're doing, or if you're prior service, what you did, I'll send you a discount code to thank you for your service. With that, I have the housekeeping wrapped up. Let's get into the main topic of today's show. Let's start out with our history segment. The episode is 1236, so let's look at the year 1236. Not a super interesting year, but uh, there's uh, a few things in it that are of note. Uh, number one, um, in the Battle of... Oh, no, that's not the one I wanted to uh, to give you. Here it is. Uh, only four of 58 districts in Sichuan, China, are captured from the southern Sog by the Mongols under uh, Odegiri. Population of Shindu, roughly 1 million inhabitants, is summarily slaughtered after the Mongols take the city with little effort. So uh, when they went into Sichuan, China, so they've, they've taken most of the rest of China, and they're starting to spread through China. And uh, they only took four of the 58 districts, but one of them had about a million people, and they slaughtered them. A man, women, and children. That's a disaster, folks. Um, another thing that I thought you might want to hear about today, just because I thought it was uh, kind of interesting that this could happen, a tournament in Tickle in England turns into a battle between Northerners and Southerners, but peace is restored by the Papal Legate. So the Pope's man put peace back. So they had a tournament, you know, jousting and knights and stuff like that, and it was, I guess, an early form of a soccer, uh, you know, a soccer riot. Uh, they got a bit bigger, probably involving swords and clubs and people killing each other uh, over a tournament. Nothing is new, I guess. And then in the markets section of the Wikipedia page for the year, a drought causes the harvest to fail, which causes one of the great famines of the 13th century in Europe. So a drought caused many other people to die. So on one side of the world, an army was slaughtering millions, and on the other side of the world, hundreds of thousands were dying of starvation. Um, lessons from the past. That's why we do these. It seems like the things that are most recorded in history, other than some interesting things like we found out yesterday, are generally the disasters. They leave a lasting impression. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So let's get into uh, the main topic today, which is my plans for this property. I want to start out, this is not really a permaculture 
episode, but it's going to be a lot of permaculture stuff that's getting done. But you could be doing this without knowing hill or high water about permaculture, but you probably wouldn't be able to. And for those of you that are kind of holdouts on the whole permaculture ideal, I think that maybe today's show will give you a lesson in what can happen when you learn to see the world through the eyes of a permaculturist. And a property like mine, which seems to have so many problems, how much of an asset many of those things can be turned into. And permaculture principle one is observe and interact. So there's uh, a lot of principles in permaculture. There's you know what they call Mollisonian principles, which are principles by Bill Mollison. Holgromian principles from David Holgrom. Uh, ben Falk has about 44 of his own principles. All really good per uh, permaculturists over time begin to look at the world through their own eyes and their own history and develop principles uh, of their own that are universal that all permaculturists use with different ways of putting them out. But one that's pretty universally agreed upon by all is observe and interact. It's pretty much in everybody's principles, even if they state it a little bit differently. And I think that many people have too short term of a time horizon when they hear that. Because the interaction is part of that. So that's, you know, if I go out and I see a plant that I think is, is a weed and uh, I observe that weed and I, I don't like what I'm observing and I pull it out, I've interacted. And then if, if the same weed or a new weed grows back, it tells me something and I might interact differently in the future. And that's part of permaculture. If I plant something, uh, a species, in three different places and it does really, really good in one place, okay in another and crappy in a third then my interaction might be to look for more places like the first one to plant them uh, and not get upset about the fact that I had some losses, interaction and observation. But it, it should really almost be if you wrote down observe and interact. Observe in all capitals and interact in small letters, especially in the first year. So I did a lot in my first year. I put in some contour-based wood beds. I've, I've gotten animals onto the property. I've started to graze them in rotational areas. I've repaired some of the worst areas of the property to at least where they'll grow weeds. I mean, I had a strip about 150 feet long that was white gravel that a neighbor told me had never grown a single green thing since 1971, and today it's covered with green weeds. That's an advancement. Uh, so, you know, I had actually areas of the property where the first thing you had to do was get weeds to grow. And I've done so. I've done some of this interaction. We put in a pool and a deck, put a floor in the uh, chicken coop, started getting the chickens in, started doing composting, uh, removed some hard structure that was not good, put in water catchment, put in. So there's definitely an interaction component. But what I've been, been doing mostly is observation, walking my property every single day, thinking I'll put a swale there, and then coming up with a million reasons why it's a bad place for a swale. And then talking myself either out of it or back into it. And going round and round and round. And, and watching different weeds grow. Success out. Watching Indian paintbrush and blue bonnet turn into you know uh, different species. And going into summer and watching where areas become you know barren and dry and, and a fire risk. Uh, and then watching the, the end of summer rains come and green up a lot of the property. And watching the property green in some areas and still kind of brown and sickly in others. And watching these 
these these islands of brilliant green. Like even where it's green and and looks relatively healthy, there's these other places where there's these islands where it's so green now it looks almost out of place. And those are the places that have been intensively grazed and managed with the animals. These little pockets with small amounts of animals I've had to work with and limited ability in the first year to get them into a true cell-grazing pattern. But seeing, yeah, it works. Watching the places where I threw on a cover crop with doing nothing. And only certain spots did any seed take. And then what seed took and when. And sometimes seed went down in May and it's only germinating now. And now I know don't throw that seed in May, throw it now. Because a lot of it survived through, but a lot of it was probably lost. Looking at the areas where trees that were near death died and had to be removed, and where trees that looked like they were going to die restored and came back when we did a little bit of land management. Watching the rain flow off the property, watching the shadows grow longer and shorter at different times of the year, seeing not just the solar aspect that I can see with an application on my iPhone, but see it in actual time, over time. Stand in areas of the property and feel whether it's cooler or warmer. This level of observation, that sounds like a lot of work really isn't. It's taking a walk every night with the geese, taking a walk every morning with the geese, playing with the dogs, paying attention when you're doing hard work to the things around you, watching birds come and go, seeing what's here and what's not here, realizing the assets and the liabilities on the property. This is this has been the first year. And it's something very few people ever do with a property. Because, again, this is the permaculture lens that you're looking at the world through. And it's so easy when you have a lot of knowledge about swales and contour dams and uh, stacking functions and forest layers. You drive by a piece of property at 80 miles an hour on the highway, and it's got nice slope And it's relatively green, and you know there's soil there, and you're looking, and you can tell there's clay in the landscape. And you can design that property. This is what happens. I, I, I swear, guys, this is true. You, you go past that property, and in your head, you have a layout, a dam, a swale connecting to another dam, an overflow point, food forest strip here. And you can almost design the property at 60, 70, 80 miles an hour if it's a perfectly laid out property. And it seems like along highways, there's lots of them. Then you get onto a piece of land that's a suburban backyard or three acres in what I call the rural burbs, which is kind of where I'm at. There's other people around. It's not real remote. There's suburbs just down the road, but it's rural and I can do what I want. Or even out in the country, and all of a sudden design becomes complicated. Because it's not so simple when it's yours. And it's not so simple when the contours of the land aren't so obvious, and it's not so simple when the soils aren't clay, and it's not so simple when the soils aren't deep. And with my property, I have basically an ocean reef underneath it. Places I have a foot of soil, like a few places I'm lucky I have two. A lot of places I have eight to ten inches to a foot. And in some places I literally have two inches of soil before you're on a slab of rock. You look at that and you go, boy, this is going to be hard. But you spend a year, and watching even the places where it seems to be the worst, you do see some life and things growing. You put a shovel in the ground where there's rock everywhere, and last night we were evaluating an area for a pond, and we were finding rock slab, not chunk, slab, at between two to six inches in an area 
I'll tell you more about that pond. You go, how are you going to put a pond there? We'll, we'll get to it. But we're doing that, and also we just see this area. And it just, just looks different. Put a shovel into it all the way to the top of the shovel. Dig it out. All the way to the top of the shovel. Dig it out. Start expanding it. We dug down about two feet before we hit rock. Our best guess is a large tree was there that ate away the rock. We start to understand what a tree could do to limestone. And the soil that can be built not just above the ground but below the ground. And we look at that and go, bonus. Bonus for our pond. We just found a deep hole for our pond. Again, more on the pond in a bit. So all of these things have led me to where I am today. And I have to tell you that today, I'm more excited about my property than at any time in history. One of the things that we're doing right now, Joe and I yesterday uh, used heavy timbers, not like landscape timbers, like bigger ones, like 4 by 4 size timbers. And we built, you know, kind of sort of like a log cabin interlocking structure, eight feet by eight feet, uh, with these eight foot timbers, uh, to about a foot, eh, 16 inches off the ground, something like that. I don't remember how many courses we did. Big spikes overlapping, you know. And we're going to fill that today with like a limestone pack fill. So it's hard and level. And a 1500 gallon water tank is going to go up on there. That's going to give us some elevation. And I'll talk about that more in a bit. But that's just what we, we did yesterday. We have a bunch of rock on the property. We threw it in there. It'll save us money on the limestone, crushed limestone fill that we're going to be bringing in. Um, you know, we, we do that and we look at it and we stand there and we look at it and go, that actually looks really, really good. And we started thinking about this greenhouse that we want to build. We want to build a 10 by 10 greenhouse on the uh, southwest corner of one of my shop buildings. And we want to do it in a more insulated fashion. So basically just lots of windows on the the south and west wall. Uh, the north wall is pointless to put windows in. And the east wall will be up against the shop. So it doesn't really make sense to do that either. So we'll have this situation where light can get into the greenhouse sufficient to start plants and make everything awesome. But yet, it'll be a lot more insulated in a typical greenhouse. And we were going to do this by ordering a tough shed and preparing a spot and having it delivered. And we looked at the structure that we built with these timbers and went, well, they make them 10 feet long. We could do a 10 by 10 greenhouse or maybe even a 12 by 12 greenhouse and just do this log cabin stacking, put caulking in between all of the seams. We get to the roof. We start thinking, well, if we put these timbers across the roof, it'll be damn stable, but it'll be quite expensive. So we say, well, why don't we just put a few across as joists and deck the roof with 2x12s? That'll be nice and solid. And, you know, we can put something inside the roof sloping downward on the inside of that little roof that vents out any water that might come through. And then we looked at it and said, well, if we did that, you could just continue the courses of the log cabin style up about two feet more till it came up to be at the height of the roof of the shop building. And then you could put a water tank in there that would be aesthetically pleasing, a pressure tank up there on that roof that you could fill from the other tanks and use to water your greenhouse, and you wouldn't see it. It wouldn't be, you know, offensive to the eye. And then we thought about that, and we said, you know, once you have that on the backside where you come in with a door... You know what you could do? Here's what you could do. You could go there 
and you put up a little ladder that goes up on that roof. That way you could get up there to work on your tank and everything. And then when you went over that little wall and went down in there to that little hidden area where the water tank was, you'd have this cool little deck you could sit on and hang out. And if you were sitting in a chair, you could see over the, the, the railings, basically. And you could see the whole property, and it would be quite pretty. It would be this little nest up there that as long as it wasn't the blazing hot days of summer, it would be great. In fact, in the winter on a sunny day, it would be a nice, warm, sunny place to kind of lay out as a human cooker, you know, and warm up in the sun like a lizard. And that would be great. But the whole thing is basically a tactical observation post. Because if you were to get down behind that barrier, you have protection. You can observe in a lot of different directions... It's rock solid, hard, and safe to be up in there. And anybody approaching the property would never see it as a location that someone would be on or would assume that if someone was there, they could be seen because it would look like a flat, flat roof line. And all of a sudden, we go from a greenhouse to a greenhouse with water pressure tanks and a tactical observation post for a tactical situation that could arise during a shit-at-the-fan scenario to also a lovely place to sit, chill, and relax, to even not a bad place when you have students here for someone to pitch a tent camp out on. In fact, you could probably hang a hammock up there. So that is function stacking in a, a brand new way. Pricing out the materials, we think it'll cost about $1,600 to build. A 10 by 10 tough shed, once it's modified, would cost just about the same and would never do what this will do. So that's just one. We will probably run a green a, a workshop for that one for those that want to come and help build it um, and learn from that. And it gets better. We're not done with the function stacking. Our thought is to lay down about three courses of these timbers and then to put perforated drain pipe in there. And that perforated drain pipe is like French drain pipe. And then we'll plumb two stack pipes into that perforated drain pipe, one really high up by where the roof line is going to be, and one a bit lower, down at about, you know, two feet off the ground. And they'll be sitting right next to each other, and they'll just be attached to this part. So that'll be a solid PVC pipe attached to this French drain in the, in the, in the floor. We'll then fill the floor, okay, we'll fill the floor with dirt. That dirt will be in contact with the dirt underneath the building, which means... Get this, you have basically earth contact at that point. Anything down there might as well be subsurface, though it would be hard to excavate and dig a hole in the ground. So now we've brought up the floor about eight inches. Okay? Then we build the rest of the greenhouse. We caulk it in, we put our windows in, we put our doors in, we build all this other stuff I talked about, and we put a little fan in there, a little 12-volt fan. And it blows down one pipe and up from the other. It blows down from the tall pipe, and you have another little fan inside the lower pipe, and it blows up. During the day in the wintertime, when it's nice and hot, probably a little bit too hot, where you're actually opening windows so it doesn't get too hot and cook your plants, guess what's happening? That fan that's in the pipe that goes all the way to the roof where the hottest temperatures are is sucking air down and blowing it into the floor and heating up the floor. Now, this is a little fan. This can run on a 12-volt battery that's recharged with a small solar panel, like a 40-watt panel, and run almost in infinitely on, on that type of a situation. Now, at night, when it begins to cool off, 
the fan in the pipe that's lower stacked starts to blow out and draw air out of the floor that's been warmed up and keep the greenhouse above freezing during the times of the year where it's below freezing. And since we have an insulated structure versus just a glass house, we can keep the thing warm. And since it's right next to our shop building on a really cold night, we could just toss a little small heater in there with some power. And if we even want to take it to another level, we're going to build some compost bins just to the outside of this. And those compost bins can be used to generate heat, which is piped with water into the greenhouse. So now we have three different methods that are all quite passive. Only one drawing off the grid to keep sensitive plants warm in that greenhouse in our coldest winters. And this ain't Aspen. So we're not asking very much of a system like this. If we built it with SIP panels, it would be far more energy efficient But it's going to look really awesome, designed like a log cabin style. It'll be easy to build because we'll frame the doors and the windows as we build it, which makes it just dead simple. And it, it will function fine for the climate that we're in. So it's appropriate technology to the climate. Now I've got a greenhouse that heats itself moderates its own climate and temperature and doesn't get too hot during the day, provides an observation post, a pressure water tank, a place to chill out in the sun in the winter, <laughs> and honestly, a nice little room to chill out in in the winter. Could you see being in that greenhouse when on a really cold day when it's nice and warm in there? Kicked back, having a beer, watching the sunset in the west? So... All of that functionality goes into one greenhouse with a build budget of about $1,600. How does that compare with your typical glass house that sits out in the middle of a field and only gets used during the coldest months of the year and still has plants freeze to death inside of it without supplemental heating? That's just one. One thing we've come up with in the last three weeks, and it's from that observation interaction. I did mention the tank platform that we built that gave us the idea to build the greenhouse using the timbers. Um, we're building, building quite a few more of those. And depending on, you know, looking at the size of tanks, 2,500-gallon poly tanks are really, really tall. Uh, I have one place I really want to put one. I'm not sure if it's going to work there. I'll talk more about why. But even if we don't, we already have 1,500 gallons of water catchment. Uh, technically 1550 but just call it 1500 we'll be putting in another six to seven thousand or 7500 gallons of water catchment uh, this year uh, by year's end or at, at, at latest you know into January we'll have these these tanks in so we're gonna have water everywhere and that's we're just getting started when we put that in we have a lot of other ways to, to retain more water on the property both in actual reserves of water that we can pump or gravity feed Uh, and in you know ways where we're actually hydrating the earth and, and, and drought-proofing the property, which I'll get to in a minute. Uh, in fact, I'll get to that right away. Um, no, we're going to use, I wanted to say this, we're going to use some pumps in our system. And a lot of times in permaculture, people really don't want to use pumps unless they absolutely have to because then you're dependent on energy. So you try the best you can to do things like put dams high on your property. And that way you always have pressure from that dam to move water in your driest times. And if you need water to move, you can use gravity. Because the only way you can get water to move for free is using gravity. Everything else requires an energy input. 
yet I have a property where I can't dig a hole into the ground without hitting rock at about a foot in most of it, or less, uh, that won't hold water in a dam without taking some extraordinary measures. And so flat that we measure our contours and our elevation changes in inches, not feet, over about 80% of the property. So moving water with with gravity requires us to build these platforms and raise these tanks a foot or two off the ground, which is fine, and we don't mind doing it. But you still only get so much pressure from that. And for little bits of drip irrigation in urban gardens and all, it's fine. But if you really want to move water... Uh, somewhere in a significant amount quickly, a pump works. And a pump is on-demand technology. And what I mean by that is I don't have to have a pump running all the time. So if I want to put 200 gallons of water into a, into a swale, for instance, from a 1,500-gallon tank, then I only have to flip a switch and run that for maybe 20 minutes, and it's done. Or if I want to push water to a couple 50-gallon stock tanks for my geese, and I don't want to run a bunch of piping and everything, and I just want to throw a hose out there and do it quick and then put the hose away, and I don't really have a good way to get my well water to there, but there's a tank nearby. If there's a pump sitting there, then boom, done. And I can do that much quicker, save a lot of time. But the gravity feed is still there if I need it. So that's part of why we're using pumps. Now, what we thought of initially was putting submersible pumps inside the tanks. We realized that's kind of a pain, especially if you need to service them at all. So what we're going to do is the couple tanks that will have a pump, we'll put a pump, an external pump, and we'll plumb the valve that comes out of the bottom of the tank to the pump, and we'll have a Y valve that goes to gravity feed. So it'll just be sitting there. Now, by buying a variable pressure pump and turning it down to a pretty low pressure, the tank that we're putting in the platform for right now that's going in our urban garden, we have an outdoor shower, just a you know a simple outdoor shower thing that you buy at like Home Depot that you put like by a pool for people to rinse off, right? And uh, you you know put a garden hose to it and use you know your your hose bib off your house or your well to, to run it. And we've had it that way for quite a while. Um, but when we put this platform in, we realized if we just pull it a couple feet off the wall of the building and plant some things back there like bamboo and climbing vines and all in that nice shady wet area, Put in a couple little frames for some doors. We have this private area where people can go take a shower and not feel like they're on display. And then we thought, well, you know that big black tank with water in it? That's great water to take a shower with because it's not cold and it's not hot. But sitting in that tank, even well shaded the way we do, it'll be kind of warm. It'll be water you wouldn't mind taking a shower with most of the year. Not in the middle of winter, but most of the year. So... We can take a valve off of that pump, set the pump to relatively low setting, turn that pump on, and you have shower water coming out of that tank that's warmed up to at least uh, a warmer temperature than what's coming out of the cold, cold ground. And the tank forms part of the shelter that shelters the shower. The shower overflows into the swale system that goes both into the urban garden and the large swale system that I'm about to talk about. So this is, this is why permaculture is survivalism. In a survival situation, you have to make the most out of what you have. Permaculture requires that we do that before we're in a survival situation so that it does not occur. Permaculture is the fire uh, extinguishers, the smoke alarms, the flame retardant, the use of proper materials so the house doesn't burn down, where survivalism without permaculture is just, holy crap, my house is on fire, how do I get out and not die? 
All right? So you see how that function stacking works. So every time somebody takes a shower now outside, which, by the way, I'll do quite a bit in the summer just because it's, it's awesome. I'm surrounded by grapes and passion fruit and ivy and bamboo, and the water's cool but not cold, and I'm outside, and I'm using rainwater instead of the hard water that comes out of my house from my well. Awesome. And at that same point, by doing nothing and just using safe soaps, that water is trickling around the platform into the swale system, watering fruit and nut trees, and if, on a big rain event, if it happens to coincide with it, all the nutrient it's picking up is being pushed out into this main swell system I'm about to talk about. So the tank holds water, provides pressure, allows for additional use of a, of a pump, overflows into a swell system, so this tank will overflow quite often. I got a 1,500-gallon tank attached to a roof that catches 22,000 gallons of water a year. So that overflow event will then go into a swell system. It's also forming half of the, the, the shelter for the shower area. And it's going to provide a vertical growing surface for a lot of cool things. So Dorothy's taken to, to painting center blocks, these bright colors like blues and orange and stuff like that. And they look awesome. And she uses them for platforms to put her plants on. Well, all we're going to do is have her paint them the colors she wants, put those around the platform, put dirt in them, plant vines in them like maypop for passion fruit and grapes, put lattice up along the, the tank, and train the vines up onto the tank so the tank is not an eyesore, and so the water doesn't get too warm in the sun in the summertime. But yet there will all be deciduous vines so that when it gets colder... The sun that does hit the tank will warm the water so it'll be usable all but in the coldest months of the year. Permaculture, folks. And if that system's in place and the grid goes down, I can still take a shower because the next thing I'll add is a small pressure tank and I can run the pump just enough to fill the pressure tank. That pressure tank will allow us to extend our warm water. That'll just be a bolt-on. But I've got water for my plants water for taking a shower, nutrient flow, irrigation, a, a reserve of water in that one place of 1,500 gallons, a total reserve of water, not counting the pool of the, or the pond of over 7,000 gallons. While there's active components in it using energy grid, every single component can be used just a little less effectively or take a little more time without the grid. Function stacking. Function stacking, the simple becomes complex. Um, the next one, this, this, this is for the workshop we're going to be doing in November. Um, I, I don't even know how many spots are available yet. Um, tomorrow it will open to anybody. It's uh, open today. Uh, again, one more day for just MSB members. I think we're at like 15 or 16. I'm not sure. i got to go see. A lot of people fill out forms, but I don't know if they paid yet. I've got to send some details out to the people who have signed up and get a head count. But PayPal's basically going to shut it off when we hit our, our 24th uh, person that pays. And um, so if you can get to this one, get to this one. If you can't get to this one, you know, come to the come to the greenhouse one. Uh, Joe and I even talked yesterday. i got to clear it with Dorothy first. We talked about doing a TSP Christmas party. Uh, this would be like a one-day thing, like a Friday or a Saturday. And it would probably mostly be locals. But people would be welcome to stay over. Everybody would show up. Everybody brings like a Secret Santa gift. Uh, we do some fun and skills stuff and some demo stuff. 
and uh, potlucks where people bring their food instead of, uh, you know, have some beer and some wine, eat, drink, and be merry, and just hang out with each other. And, uh, you know, the people that stay over camp, and uh, next day everybody goes home. We were thinking about doing that, but that would be a way if you're local and uh, can't make the time or the investment on one of these other workshops to come out here and meet some cool people. But come to one of these if you can, guys. I'm not saying that just as the guy that sells the uh, the, the seats to it that, that do earn us a profit. I mean, we're not unprofitable in this, though. You know, honestly, if we didn't feed people like crazy, we could be more profitable. We put a ton of money uh, into making sure everybody is well cared for here. Um, because I don't need to say it to sell the seats out. They always sell out, and they sell out quick. I'm saying it so that people that you know might otherwise not do it step up and come to at least one because it will change you. Meeting the people from this community in you know numbers of 20 and greater, and being around them for three or four days, will take the feeling of isolation right off of you. You'll realize how big this movement is, not just permaculture, but modern survivalism as a whole. And how big this community is. And how amazing people really are. How smart people really are. Because it's easy to realize how stupid most people are. But we lose sight of the genius of humanity. And it will bring it back to you. So anyway, this next one in November, we're taking swales to an extreme at this point. On flat land. In an area where you can only dig so deep. And the more Joe and I look at the project, the longer the swales get. Um, we now think that the second swale up in the system can be brought all the way out to the front road. If we do that, we're looking at a swale that's close to 100 yards long and will take water from the road almost to the back of the property in what looks like an uphill path because there's a contour that we can work with to do it. So it will catch water from the road in the front driveway, water from our driveway in front of our garage, water off one half of the garage from the downspout, which will eventually be a tank, and then the tank will overflow into it, and take all of that catchment into the property, go down to a third swale in the, situ in, 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 the, uh, in the system, which will then almost look like it's above and below the first swale at the same time. That swale's over... God, I want to say that swale's over 70 yards, and it's really funky. And then one big top swale that's going to come into the urban garden and maybe connect to the small swales in the urban garden. So the, when we have a roof overflow event, first it will overflow into the small swales that are in the urban garden, fully hydrate them, back flood up the swale to the back of the property, and begin going down through everything else I just talked about. Into that system, we're estimating about... 40 trees for long-term productive trees, big trees. This is mainframe food forest. This will be strip forest with, with inner swales of mixed pasture and, herb, and herbaceous bush plants and things like that. There's a bunch of oaks there. Most of them will stay. One has to go. It's a pretty small one. Some of them will be pruned a little bit. And if we are removing oaks, we'll be removing them As the food forest grows, and when the food forest needs space that an oak's occupying, we'll take the oak out. So we'll do some planning in our planting to say that tree's probably dead in five years. When we drop it, we don't want to kill what we've just planted, so let's plant with the intention of removing that tree eventually. So we have to think that way. This tree is an asset today 
but will be a competitor with our, our productive species tomorrow and will have to go away. Some of the oaks will stay and be part of the long-term canopy. They're a native tree. They do well. And by improving the system, they'll do better. And they will produce mast and a, an acorn drop. While I won't eat those acorns, um, they are usable as some livestock feed. Like in the future, we might do some small pigs once a year. And that would be a good feed source to finish them on. The whole system will be able to have animals graze through it, both pasture and forest grazing. This forest grazing is actually really cool. You have mass drop and things like that. So here's the interesting thing. In order to do 40 productive trees in there, so these are apples, plums, pomegranates, pecans, chestnuts, okay, we'll plant 280 supporting trees. Mimosas, locusts, um, mesquites, trees like that. Nitrogen-fixing trees and biomass-producing trees. Those 280 trees will be killed over a four- to five-year period. They'll never get higher than your head. Every time they get higher than your head, we'll be waiting for the next time we have a rainy season, and we'll be cutting them and dropping them to the ground. And we will build soil in a place that right now has only a few inches into feet of soil. We may eventually end up with the swales being nothing but berms. Because we might build soil to the point where the swales go away because it's so flat and the swales are going to be shallow to begin with. And people say, well, what happens then? Nothing. The system's now mature and self-sustaining. Or we can always go in and clean out the ditch side of the swales again and make them deeper. It's always up to you as a designer. And we probably won't plant in the swell. We'll plant the swell mounds and the inner swells and above the swells. Inner swells are spaces between the swells. That system is going to be blow you away insane. And the whole thing's on less than one acre. And it ties in. It's a zone four food forest. It's something you put quite a bit of maintenance into the first year, some the second, a little bit the third. By the fourth year, you're, you're just deciding some of these trees that we've been chopping and dropping aren't dying fast enough. Let's pick a few to be long-term support trees and really start to kill them. In the fifth year, you've got almost all the support species that you're not going to let be part of the final canopy dead. And now the system requires harvest and grazing. And it's almost not touched. It's walked through and enjoyed, and it's self-sustaining. And if you want to water it, you push water into its swales. Awesome. But yet it's attached to a zone one intensively managed system that will be a system that we're in every day doing a little bit with every day. And you think of zone one as being very far away from zone four, but in a property like ours, the two can mesh together because the land told me to do it that way. When I realized what could be done with swales, I have this huge pasture, another full acre pasture out on my west. It was where my mind was for food forest. There's hardly any trees there. The soil sucks, but it was wide open, and there's more slope and more contour, and I could do more with it. But then I realized this subtle elegance of this piece of land that you see is flat, but between the swales has about four inches of drop, and that's enough. It has all this hard surface to collect. And has better soils. And is better for the first forest implementation. Because yeah, this is just the first forest. There will be multiple forests and two main forests. 
on a three-acre property, and when they're done, they'll occupy collectively about one and three-quarter acres. That's food security. And somebody driving by will go, oh, look, a bunch of trees. That's all they'll see. It won't look like a farm anymore. It'll look like a bunch of trees. And taking that into account, when we do the west pasture, I'll tell you a little bit about how we're going to do that a bit because the soils are so bad there. But we can now flip water off the road. And with the road catchment into a swell system like that and into another swell system and into a front pasture, we'll have more water than we ever need. We'll turn a place with 30 to 35 inches of rain into a place that acts like a climate with 60 to 70 inches of rain. And now I see how to do it. When I moved in, I could see almost how to do it, enough to know it was possible. But with almost a year of observation, critical thinking and planning, now I know exactly how to do it. So that's awesome. Road, road catchment diversion, more water than we could ever need. This will then up our ability to do cell grazing with our chickens and our geese. As we're building this, we'll be cover cropping everything like crazy. And as, uh, as we do that, we'll be moving the, the animals through the land. Um, long term, the, the west pasture, the one acre west pasture that's going to have to take a different approach will have probably more inner swell, bigger spaces between the swells and forest strips with more true pasture. But as the one I just described is coming up, it's much easier to get growth on faster. And once the swales are in, the areas to be grazed just kind of define themselves. And there's deep enough soil there, in 90% of it anyway, to go in and move, use movable fencing, which we're already using for the geese, and we'll probably upgrade to some electro-fencing for the chickens. So that starts the cell grazing in our system. And now we've got a system with 280 support trees dropping biomass, being scratched into the ground by chickens, grazed on by geese, and crapped out in the swales and the inner swales with zero erosion because the water can't erode anything because it ends up in the swale. And all the soil you normally would wash away is on flat enough land. The erosion is not that bad anyway. being held by the roots, the swales, the berms, the sills. And that fertility begins to build like mad. We will never fertilize that place. We'll fertilize it once by planting it. Now, if you're going to come to the workshop, we're going to lay out exactly what trees, where they're going to go, what's going to be planted. The, the support trees are going to be like, here's a list of support trees. We need 280 of them. They're going anywhere they fit. But the 40 main tree species, we're going to tell you exactly what's going where. We're going to have that all, Joe and I will have that all planned out. And we'll also talk about some bushes and climbers and things that will go into the system and how we'll create a layered system in there with species so that you will leave even though you won't plant with the ability to design it. And then in the spring we'll run a workshop where we'll come and we'll plant over over 300 trees. And, and it's it's and we're going to grow so get this, we want as much mulch as we can get in this system. So one heavy component of the cover crops that we'll be planting at this workshop. So we'll be cover cropping the swales and mulching them with hay. And uh, one of the main seeds in the cover crop will be Caius oat, which grows really tall grass. So when we go to plant the trees, 
will scythe down or, or use a rice knife to cut down all the oat, the tall oat, and put it right where it lands. And we don't have to put mulch in when we put the trees in. We will grow mulch for the second phase with the cover crop that's stabilizing the berms and putting fertility into the system. Because we'll also include vetch uh, and we'll include Austrian winter pea and bell bean, all nitrogen fixers and some other dynamic accumulators. And I'm going to be teaching people how to develop cover crop mixes by giving you both the recipe and the way to determine it with the four most important factors to consider when developing a cover crop mix and timing that with your climate and your uh, time of the year, your climate, your latitude, your rainfall, etc. So you'll be able to build a cover crop for anything. But I'm not going to tell you, oh, just go ask a feed store or something like that. I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it and then show you it being done. And that's what the system is designed to do, is to be stability for myself and my family, security for myself and my family, but a teaching tool as well, sharing it with you at a high level. I mean, this is uh, this is something I, I think that I, I don't like it. Most really good permaculture teachers won't go to this level of detail with you today. They want you to figure out how to do it for yourself. I want to share it with you so you can do it yourself. And I, I think there's a disconnect there, and I'm, I'm working on trying to be a pioneer there. But th those chickens and geese are going to come to be a much bigger asset in our system. And once that's, that system's in place, then I'm probably looking next year into bringing in three dorper sheep, a ram and two ewes. And that will allow us to take raising and fertility to yet another level. Small animals, I don't want goats, I don't want to have to milk them, whatever. But that, that a trio of those dorpers, about every 18 months, will produce about five lambs to growth weight. So now we have another meat yield. And lamb, folks, if you've priced it, especially pasture-red, you know, beyond organic lamb is a hell of a lot more expensive than pasture-grazed beef. So I'm bringing a high-dollar meat crop in that's easier to manage than a low-dollar one or a mid-dollar one. And we also have the geese are getting, you know, you can tell that they're getting into that point where you know they're going to be in the reproduction mode next year. We'll be raising geese. We'll probably raise a dozen geese a year. So one goose a month is a meat yield. This is an animal that we can take from gosling to about 11 to 12 pounds on grass in 10 to 12 weeks. Nothing else puts meat on. I mean, it blows away rabbits for production, especially for ease of production. We put our geese... On, we didn't brood them. We put them on pasture in a small chicken tractor on day one that they arrived. So we know that can be done. So then we got the now we've got meat from the geese. We've got meat bird chickens we'll be doing every year, like the 60 we just did. We've got uh, dorper sheep coming in for lamb yield. So we've got three big meat yields. We've got our egg yield. Guys, again, this is a three-acre property. The reason I'm sharing like so intimate detail as to the how we're doing this is I picked a property that was perfect for us geographically, but difficult for us logistically. I didn't do it on purpose, but I wasn't afraid of it. And what I'm trying to convey here is if you really think about it, those of you that are like, I got to have 30 or 40 or 50 acres, unless you want a hunting property, and, and I understand that because I want one, you don't. Two, three acres? I, I, are you beginning to see the level of productivity? Because I haven't even talked about the contour beds. The contour beds are going to go to berries, hazelnuts. I mean, that system 
couple hundred square feet is going to be productive enough to produce more than we can use. It's just one little afterthought. <laughs> the water tank that goes on top of the greenhouse that has the collection tank on the other side of it will overflow down into that. I mean, we're building a system that, that will water itself and hold water like crazy. I haven't even talked about like three other pieces of pasture that are basically going to be left mostly open and how we're going to improve those. It's only three acres. In fact, I haven't even talked about, other than mentioning it, the, the one-acre west pasture yet. And this is nowhere near as intensive as it'll end up being because as I build it, I'll make it better. The next thing is, we want a pond. Not our little tank ponds. We want a pond. We want something the geese can float around in and crap in and build soil. And we can clean out some anaerobic soil once every two or three years and put it on the land and inoculate it with all kinds of great stuff. We want a pond that I can grow fish in that are table-sized fish that we can eat. We want a pond that looks beautiful. We want a pond. Now, we'll never have a half-acre pond here. There was red clay... Below the soil, we'd have us a big old half-acre pond. I would put a half-acre into water on this property at minimum. I'd probably have an acre of water, and I'd probably have a half-acre feature dam, and I'd probably have um, about four to five other small dams, anywhere between a tenth of an acre to a quarter of an acre throughout the whole property. It would be totally worth it, but it ain't going to happen. So how do you do this? Well, what I calculated is in a 30 by 60 area that's just to the west of my house, It's nicely shaded because there's a lot of trees around it. And it's just to the north side of my pool. That area is almost dead flat. Almost. There's between two to six inches of soil there. Except for this one hole that's about as big as a, as a, as a kitchen table. That you can go down about two and a half feet. It's a big hole. It's right in the middle of this area. That if we take a bobcat and clear all the dirt out of that area, which is beautiful soil, until you get to the rock, then we would have about 22 cubic yards of soil. I just used a simple cubic yard calculator for that. We reserve that off to the side. And then we're going to figure out how much fill we need to bring in, in addition to that 22 cubic yards, to put a berm all the way around it with a gentle slope in and out. So it slopes gently in, gently out. And build that berm up to when we put the soil that we're reserving back on it We get up to about 32 to 36 inches in height from the ground level, which will give us a depth in the pond of about three feet at the deepest, maybe four feet where that hole is, but in some areas about three feet, in other areas about 18 to 20 inches. So lots of different depths in the pond. Total water that that pond will hold is about 60,000 gallons of water. I have somewhat hard, but very good, clean well water that we can initially fill it with, but I don't want to be filling it with well water all the time. So right on the side of the house, there's a nice area that's also nicely shaded that we can put in a great big water tank. There's enough roof that go that we can, we can divert to that side to catch about 25,000 gallons of water a year. That tank will have an overflow that overflows to the pond. The pond will have an overflow that overflows to do other things in the landscape. So that the tank will first fill and then become a replenishment system for the pond, 
But at some point in time, if the pond looks low, we could take a thousand gallons of water out of that tank and bring the pond level back up. So the pond becomes very self-sustaining. We might occasionally have to supplement the water into it, but it would be an occasional thing only, and it would never go dry. It just might get lower than we would like. We're going to put an island in the middle of it. We're going to line it. You're wondering how you're going to hold water like this. We're going to line it with an HDPM liner. That liner will cost me about $1,100. Bucks. Um, we'll have to have a machine on site when the day the liner shows up for sure because it's going to weigh it's going to weigh about 1,300 pounds. But we'll cover the liner so it's not exposed to the sun. We'll go with a very gentle slope into the water until we get to a point where the water is at least... 10 inches deep, and then it can get steeper. So I'm going to have to bring a lot of fill in to do this. But I think it's worth it to have that 60,000-gallon pond. We can grow fish in there. The geese can swim around in there. We can build topsoil in that pond that we can excavate out uh, you know, every once in a while. We can drain the pond to a large degree and go in there and pull out a lot of the soil that we'll be building on the bottom of that pond. And that's another asset. That might be something we do every four or five years, but it's going to be a good yield. It'll be yards, yards of high-fertility soil. It'll be anaerobic. When we pull it out, we'll have to put it somewhere for a while and let it, let it you know, lose its anaerobic state. But once that happens, we have a huge fertility system there and a fish-growing system and a water reserve system. And a hangout for the geese with a little island in the middle of it where they can go sit and not be molested by Charlie and Max. And by the way, the banks of that planted to the extreme. We're even thinking about making it a little bit more narrow and putting some bows across it and making the whole thing into one giant, basically, Chinampa. But that's a little outside the box, and I don't know if we'll go that far. But a 60,000-gallon pond in an area where you can't build a pond above ground, and at least 90% of it being self-sustaining once established. So that's got me kind of excited. Now, West Pasture, about an acre. Many of you that have been here have parked out there and, and seen what it's like. Um, denuded soils, worst, worst soil, worst land, harshest conditions on the property. Almost no trees. And that, I would say that description is very accurate of the, the northern 65%. As you get into the lower elevations where the topsoil is built because it eroded from the upper elevations, it's some of the best on the property, but it's heavily treed down there. And I don't know how many trees we really want to remove. And there was a place down there somebody tried to build a pond, and that didn't work. But, you know, it was an attempt, and it gives us an idea of what things are like down there. And uh, so how do we handle this? Well, what we're probably going to do is while we're doing this project that I talked about in the East Pasture, at some point we'll roll that excavator out there. And uh, this is a little excavator, little bitty one, like a 60, 700-pound excavator. When we do the project in the West Pasture, we'll probably bring a bigger machine in, like a 12,000-pound machine. If It all depends on what we learn. We're going to try just to dig a little bit and just see. Can we get four inches? And if we can, then... Swales that are true swales, but flat and wide, will go in. We'll mark the contour lines out. We'll lay a bunch of wood out, and we'll do big hugel mounts. When I say big, three to four foot high. I'll have to bring in a lot of fill for it. 
I think it's worth it. Uh, but we'll build a unique Hugel mount. You think of Hugel mounts as set up holster does, they're like a 70 degree angle. We're looking at the front side of it not being quite 70 degrees, more like 50 degrees, you know, a big berm. And then the back side tailing out because there's a lot of place to plant trees. The Hugel mounds, and I might change the shape of them as I do some calculating and some other things. The Hugel mounds will effectively act like an above ground swale. They'll hold the water back as we build topsoil. And that land is so bad, it's in need of sheet mulching, basically. How do you sheet mulch an acre? It's insane. It really is. It's not something that's, that's really um, likely to, to happen. So, here's the plan. We will simply use yard waste and leaves to the extreme. Now, I probably won't use grass clippings. But like it's fall right now, we're gonna Joe and I are gonna start scouting for places where people are raking up leaves. We'll bring in as many leaves are free. We'll just pick them up, pickup truck load after pickup truck load after pickup truck load after pickup truck load. What we don't use right away, we'll just stockpile it. We don't worry about it rotting. We want it to rot. We don't care. Plenty of places we can put it along the property for now until it's ready to be used. We'll build these swales. We'll plant them to trees and bushes and vines and cover crops. And in the inner swale, we'll just stack organic matter. Bring in 20, 30 bags of leaves in one inner swale. Roll over it with a lawnmower. We will probably bring in some decent planting soil, topsoil, sandy soil, something like that, in the inner swale of about an inch of depth, just to get things started. But then we'll just keep hammering it with organic matter and hammering it with organic matter. And we can probably put six inches of soil onto that acre in about two to two and a half years and not really spend any money other than bringing the high quality fill in for the mounds and planting the trees and the cover crop seed and all. But the soil building will largely come from, again, we'll do a seven to one planting ratio. In that area, we might plant 80 trees, 80 productive trees for the final system. And that means, you know, 560 support legumes type trees, chop and drop, chop and drop, chop and drop, chop and drop. Within five years, anybody looking at this property will go, wow, you're lucky. I mean, look at all the other properties around you. How did you get a property so rich and diverse with all this water on it? <laughs> We designed it. It's actually worse than a lot of the properties around it right now. It's an eyesore in some ways. We're just getting started. I'm just beginning to understand the property and, and, and its true potential. And I have to say, you know, I had talked about bringing Jeff Lawton in to do this. I'm becoming more and more happy that that's not going to happen. Because it's making me learn to take this to a level that I didn't think was possible. It's making me learn to do it. Because like I said, I can go buy a property that's, you know, not even optimum, but just easy and design it driving past it. I look at this property, I go, these are some challenges. And I'm beginning to see the beauty of the challenge and how it actually leads to a more sustainable system and a better system in many ways. It might take some money to make it happen, but if you don't spend the money on the land, 
and you spend the money on improving the land, you get a greater return than buying fertile land. I really believe that. And I'm really, again, starting to see how it all works. So we're going to build massive amounts of topsoil in the inner swells. Another big input is going to be fill. We are going to berm the entire south side of the property, except for one opening, because it's going to be a nice view. And then we are going to berm almost the entire north side of the property, at least the uh, the two-acre piece that uh, that doesn't include the west pasture, just to stop road noise and obstruction and things like that. And all of those berms are going to be planted. They'll probably be hugel berms. They'll be quite tactically advantageous, though, won't they? Nothing stops bullets like earth. And those, we don't have any real urgency. We'll simply lay out some wood and start bringing in dirt with a pickup truck. And we'll just slowly build them and plant them and slowly build them and plant them. And they, it might take three to four years to get those completely done. Those are going to be, I don't have anything else to do today, so let's go get a load of dirt. And once we get the structure about three foot high in that area, let's plant that piece of it. And let's do it again, let's do it again, let's do it again. And we'll start it at the edge of our property that doesn't have a neighbor so that by the time we get down to them and they see it happening, they don't, they already know what it's going to look like and they're not all freaked out by it. And that is a what you call a social design consideration. If you're going to do something a bit radical and you have people on one side of you and not the other, start where they're not. So that by the time you get to where they are, you don't have to explain it. You can just say it will look like that in a couple months. Oh, okay. As opposed to, why is there a giant dirt mound now? Do you want, want to see me? When they start realizing, hey, there's going to be a whole bunch of food you can pick from you. We have a gate to those neighbors. And I, I, I mean to tell them, and I have told them, if there's you know something we're growing that you you know we have an excess that you'd like, just pick it and take it. We want those neighbors to be good neighbors, and we want to be good neighbors back to them. That's social design considerations. Permaculture takes all of these things into, into account. And you know what? If you're planning that someday we might have to deal with the shit hitting the fan, you better take social design considerations into what you're doing. Because if you don't, someday you'll deal with the consequences of it. So berms, hugel berms, hugel mounds, whatever you want to call them, blocking heavy winds from the north and south. We get them from both sides different times of the year. And those things will just be, you're talking hundreds of feet. You're talking hundreds of yards by the time it's over with of edge productivity. Just extra. Just extra. And it's multiple functions. Microclimates, the south side's boiling hot, the north side's cool. West side of these berms, we could probably plant olive trees. The east side, we can plant, you know, the eastern edges of them, we can plant things that normally were too hot for. All by creating microclimates with texture in the landscape. Any place we want water to come into the property where there's a berm in the way, we'll just put a pipe under the berm and flick that water in from the road and into the swale systems on both sides of the property. Again, three acres with sizable buildings. I bet we've lost, I bet we have a quarter of an acre of the property in either driveway or building structure. So we're really looking at two and three quarter acres of land we can use. And we have another almost quarter that you don't really want to do much to because of different situations. And we're doing all this then on two and a half acres of, of land. But we did that by taking the buildings and the driveway and the roads and making them, even though they're hardscaped, 
part of the functioning system because they have almost 100% runoff of water. And instead of making the water go away, we're retaining it. Um, yeah, again, the contour bed system that you guys have seen videos of, that's going to be a massive micro food forest. That's going to be a food forest that's like all dwarf, semi-dwarfs, bushy shrubs, and perennial vegetables like Good King Henry and, and things like that. Just It'd be very little garden space in the true sense down there, peppers and tomatoes and stuff. We'll probably do melons in there just because they can run through like you know climbers and cukes and things like that. But we might put in a few conventional raised beds and all of this craziness just for peppers and tomatoes because they they are easy to manage in a nice flat area. They just are. And we might do those as wicking beds so we don't have to water them. So we'll take one of our tanks, plumb a line with a float valve to a wicking reservoir, build the bed on top of it, and the system waters itself. How cool is that? And uh, I think the big thing they point out, this is just the beginning. I feel now like I have a full plan, a master plan designed in my mind. But the reality is, as we build this, we'll find more and more and more. Because I didn't even tell you about some of the other things. On the back side of the same building that we're going to put the greenhouse on, on the, the, the north-facing side of that building, there's going to be another 1,500-gallon water tank on another platform. That will have basically what will look like a little shed built around the tank. There won't be much room in that shed because the tank's in there. But there will also be a porch up on there. And that porch will be a nice porch to sit on and look at the forest behind us and look at the hugel bed, uh, the, you know, the micro food forest, and look at the pool. And you can even see the tank and look up the north side over to the, the top of the, the, the food forest uh, the, with the big pecans in it that are going to be on the east side. And it'll be awesome, and students will be hanging out of there. Some will probably sleep up there uh, when they camp. And it'll be another observation point. And with two people, one on top of the greenhouse and one on top of that, we can cover about 80% of the property in a tactical situation. And it'll be done in such a way that anybody looking at the property, again, wouldn't even think that's a place where personnel can be concealed. They would think that, yeah, somebody can get up there. But they would think if they're up there, I would see them because there'll be false flat roof lines. And we're not done yet. We have another water tank going out to the front. We're going to improve the driveway to increase the surface runoff. We are just getting started with the, the concepts of what this place can become. By the time we're done with it, when someone comes out here and looks at it, they will not be able to comprehend that it exists in the space that it exists. And you can do this anywhere. Now, please don't take that to the extreme and make your life harder than it has to be. This property is probably as challenging a property as you want to take on. Because there's no reason to get much more challenging than this. Almost every property I looked at when we bought this house was an easier property to design permaculture-wise than this one but it didn't have the house or the location or the internet access to go along with it. But almost all of them were easier. And I'm grateful I didn't get any of them. This is an appropriate level of challenge. Try to find yourself something that's the appropriate level of challenge. You understand a lot of this stuff is going to cost money. And I can offset it, not 100%, but I can offset it by running workshops. But I'm willing to make the investment. It would be better if I didn't have to. 
And I could do it with less inputs, but it would take 10 years instead of five. And sometimes I look around at our current world and think, I don't have 10 years to do this. I need to do this now. And all this place would need to massively reduce the inputs is deeper soil. If the soils on this property were three feet above the rock line, most of the inputs I'm talking about would not be necessary. Now, the hard structures like the tanks, the platforms, etc., yeah. But we'd be able to put much ponds into the landscape much easier. We would be able to burn things up with soil on site. We'd be able to build soil faster. We wouldn't have to bring in all this dirt. But you know what? It's what I've got. So it's what I'm going to work with. And again, when someone looks at this in the future, they will not be able to comprehend how this island exists with so many things around it. And yet the driver by will just think, oh, look at the wooded lot. They won't see the tactical applications or the productive applications unless they know what to look for. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TV. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.